Gordon was born in 1887 <clears throat> into a prominent and wealthy Chicago family. Uh, his parents were William and Mary Borden, and his father had made a fortune in the Colorado silver mining. Now, this wasn't the family of the Borden uh, Condensed Milk Company. And later, when people would ask him, well, you must really be wealthy, and, and he was wealthy, but he, he didn't live that way. And he said, no, you're mistaking me for the Borden Milk Company people. Uh, but at, when he was seven years old, his mother converted to evangelical Christianity and began to pray uh, fervently for her son to know the Lord and walk with him. After he graduated from high school at age 16, William's parents gave him a gift of a trip around the world. Has anybody gotten that for your senior, your graduation trip? A uh, trip around the world and uh, sent him with a chaperone. And on that trip, he spent a lot of time in Asia and seeing the lostness of the people in China, India, Japan just gave him a burden for the lost, and his heart began to be stirred to commit himself as a missionary to missionary service. And in fact, on that trip later, he was in London and went to some meetings where R.A. Torrey, the, the R.A. Torrey, the evangelist, was preaching, and in those meetings, he committed himself saying, Lord, I'm, I am going to the mission field. I, I hear you calling me there. Uh, no reserves, I'm going, I'm committed. And at that point, he realized he was, he was leaving the family business, going to walk away from the family fortunes and set a new direction for his life. Well, he came back from the trip and entered Yale University in 1905, was very active there uh, in sports, um, a, a leader on campus. He was a wrestler, People loved him, fun-loving guy, but he was also very committed to Christ. And during that time, he started some prayer groups that in a couple of years spread throughout the entire campus and was a real leader there. With his own money, he funded a rescue mission there in New Haven and at one point was managing or, or the oversight of four different rescue missions there in that area. Later, his mom noted from his journals that he had probably given away $70,000 of his own money personally during his time in college. A very generous, committed man. One person who visited said, the sight of that young millionaire kneeling with his arm around a bum in the Yale Hope Mission made the greatest impact on his life. Well, after graduating from Yale... Borden went to Princeton Theological Seminary for theological training before going to the mission field. And one of his professors there said, this young man's judgment was so unerring and so mature that I always forgot there was such a difference in our ages. His complete consecration and devotion to Christ were a revelation to me and his confidence in prayer a continual inspiration. Borden's intention was, was to go to uh, northwestern China to be a missionary to the Uyghur Muslims. Interesting that their name is coming up in these day, days too, isn't it? The Uyghur Muslims who are being terribly persecuted and imprisoned. The Chinese government treating them in a terrible way. But he wanted to go to minister to these Uyghur Muslims. 
But first his intention was to go to, to Cairo to learn Arabic and Islam before going to study there. So he went there and lived with a Syrian family so that he could hear Arabic spoken. He was a man committed, no reserves, no retreat. I'm heading this direction. God help me. I don't know if Romans 12, 1 and 2 was a significant text in uh, William Borden's life. I, I would expect it was, even though I didn't see that I was re- as I was reading through his, auto, or his biography. But the truth of Romans 12, 1 and 2 certainly characterized his life. A man committed to, perf- to following God with all his heart. And we're going to look at Romans 12, 1 and 2 this morning. If you want to turn in your Bibles there. A short passage, but a packed passage and a challenging passage for us as the people of God. But also an encouraging one, a great invitation to us. So Romans 12, verse 1 and 2, the Apostle Paul writes, I appeal appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. We're going to look at two main points this morning. The first is our decisive commitment, and the second is our daily resistance and pursuit. Let's pray as we begin looking at this passage. Heavenly Father, Thank you for the mercies of God to us. Thank you that we, as we sung earlier, Lord, about the wondrous cross, all you have done for us. What an amazing grace you have expressed. And now, as we look in your word, would you cause those truths to run deeply in our hearts that we might respond in joyful obedience to what you call us to as your people. In Jesus' name, amen. So Romans chapter 12, verse 1, Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Paul's appeal here is not a suggestion. It's a command. He's not asking for a favor, but he is declaring an obligation. But before he declares what the command is, he first gives the basis for this call to commitment. And the basis of the commitment is The mercies of God. I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God. And with that one little phrase, he summarizes the first 11 chapters of Romans. And if you're familiar with the book of Romans, Paul lays out a whole explanation of the gospel, beginning with our sin, our rebellion against God, our desperate need, God's grace expressed to us in a remarkable way in the death of Christ. God's justifying grace to justify ungodly sinners like you and me. And then he talks about sanctification. And now when he gets to chapter 12, he says, Now, brothers, in view of all of that, in view of God's mercies, here's a command for you. Jerry Bridges summarizes God's grace to us in this way. We owe an enormous spiritual debt to God, a debt we can't begin to pay, 
There is no way we can make it good. The gospel tells us that Jesus Christ paid our debt, but it also tells us far more. It tells us that we are no longer enemies and objects of his wrath. We are now his sons and daughters, heirs with Jesus Christ of all his unsearchable riches. And that's the good news of the gospel, brothers and sisters. But why did Paul in Romans also spend so much time talking about the bad news of our situation? Well, we can't begin to appreciate the good news of the gospel until we see our deepest need. Most people, even people who have already become believers, have never given much thought to how desperate our condition is outside of Christ. Few people ever, be, ever think about the dreadful implications of being under the wrath of God. And none of us even begins to realize how truly sinful we are. Jason referred to this already this morning during our singing. And if you think back about who you were, who we were in relation to the God who created us, none of our parents had to teach us how to lie or cheat, did they? None of them, we, we don't have to teach our kids how to scream in anger when they don't get what they want or how, how to mess with daddy's laptop or other things that are clearly off limits. They just do that naturally. I remember when my nephew Neil was probably eight or nine months old. He was just crawling. We were visiting my brother and his wife. And so Neil was crawling across the living room over toward the stereo. He looks back at daddy and then he just starts to do this. Looking the whole time, knowing exactly what he was doing. This is an eight-month-old. What in the world goes on in our hearts? But you know that it's not just daddy and mommy's authority that we rebel against. We also clash swords from early on with the authority of God in our lives. And we run up against, we, we don't want anybody telling us what to do. This is who we are. And because of our rebellion, we know there is a God, Paul says. But we have rejected that. We don't honor him as God. And because of that, the wrath of God is rightfully on us. And yet Christ has rescued us from all of that. He's gone to the cross for my sin and your sin. And in light of all his mercies to us, now Paul gives this command from God. This command. And is there anything inappropriate for God to ask of us in light of all he's done for us? So the command is this. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice. And so the nature of this commitment, of this call, is it's total, it's acceptable, and it's rightful. To present your bodies as a living sacrifice recalls all the Old Testament imagery of the burnt offerings and other sacrifices at the temple. And when the Old Testament believers would bring a lamb for sacrifice, none of the lambs went back home with them. It was a total sacrifice of that lamb. There were no partial offerings there. And so when Paul says, present your bodies as a living sacrifice... He's not just referring to our physical bodies, but our entire lives. Present your lives to God as a sacrifice. If you're familiar with the book of Romans, you know back in chapter 6, Paul has used this similar language when he says, present yourselves, present your members, your eyes, your, 
your hands, your mind, your feet, your, your mouth. Present your members to God as instruments of righteousness, not as instruments of sin. So now in chapter 12, he's summing all of that up in one phrase saying, present your bodies, your entire life to God as a living sacrifice. Carol often reminds me that the problem with a living sacrifice is it keeps wanting to crawl off the altar, right? Which is what we want to do. Now this command, the the word present is an aorist tense in the Greek. And what that probably means is that he is calling for a decisive, strong, clear decision. I am going this way. To present something to someone means to place it at their disposal, their full disposal, no strings attached. Early in our marriage, when I was in graduate school, Carol's dad took us to John John Smith's Chevrolet down on Highway 41 in Marietta, and he bought us a car, a Chevy Citation. That car was wonderful. And he presented it to us. And it was ours to do with as we needed and wanted. Dad didn't say, hey, I get it on Tuesdays and Fridays. No, he presented us this car. It was fully ours to do with as we needed. And when God commands us as his blood-bought children to present our lives to him, there are no contingencies. There's no fine print in the agreement. The lamb on the way to the temple didn't carry with him a lamb's bill of rights that he could, he could hold up and say, hey, wait a minute. And before the mighty and merciful king of the universe, you and I don't get to write out our list of exceptions. So this is a call. Indeed, it's a command to present every area of our lives unreservedly to God. Your present and your future, your health, your education, your career, your promotions, your job losses, your job changes, your marriage, your singleness, your parenting, your friendships and popularities, your finances, your leisure and and entertainment, every area of life is what God calls us to present. To him. So the contract looks something like this. The top of the page, we put Heavenly Father, in light of your amazing mercies to me as an undeserving sinner, my life is yours. 100% to do with as you know best, no reserve. And as we read down through the middle of the page, it's all blank. There are no bullets, no exceptions, no contingencies. And at the bottom of the page, there's just a line there for you and me to sign our names and accept it. Kent Hughes says, This is as bold a call to total commitment as there is anywhere in the sacred writings. It applies equally to all, to the professor, to the preacher, to the pianist, to high schoolers, to everyone. It's for the entire church. We must put away the medieval thinking that makes a distinction between clergy and laity, the idea that ministers and missionaries should have 100% commitment But the laity is permitted 75% or 30 or whatever. The truth is all believers, every single one of us, 
we are all called to be totally committed to Christ. So a question, and it's a hard question, isn't it? Have you obeyed this command? Are you obeying this command today? This isn't a command just for graduate school Christians or ones who we think, boy, they're really committed. The rest of us are just sort of normal. This is the normal Christian life, brothers and sisters. Paul is addressing the same brothers and sisters that he's been writing to throughout the entire book of Romans. He doesn't suddenly shift here. Okay, here's the graduate course. No, this is the Christian life. So if you profess to be a believer and and follower of Jesus, have you decisively and definitively said, Heavenly Father, I present my body, my life, all of it to you. You do with it as you will. It may be something we need to do more than once in our lives. I think at times there are new challenges that come to us, new challenges. Uh, It could be a a health difficulty. It could be a new season in life. It could be dealing with empty nest things going on. It could be the the about with cancer or a marriage that turns sour, the death of a dream. And once again, we're we're brought back to that point because we want to crawl off the altar and say, Lord, I'm done. I didn't sign up for this. But in his all-wise and all-loving sovereignty, he has called you to this. Whatever this is right now, whatever this will be next year, five years from now, your heavenly Father in his love is calling you to this. Will you trust him? He's fitting you and me for heaven and conforming us to the image of his Son. So will we lay ourselves, will we get back on the altar and say, Lord, I'm yours? Think for a minute minute, how you would react if one of your heroes, uh, a musician or athlete or actor or actress or some famous historical person, sent you a letter inviting you to assist them on a tour or at one of the tournament or whatever their expertise entailed. Okay, imagine they sent you and said, I want you to come with me for this tour or this tournament. Tina, I don't have a soccer illustration here. I'm so sorry. Um, I, I'm going to choose Michael Jordan for my example. Again, it, it dates me, but that's, that's all right. Uh, the 1993 NBA season. I don't even know how to pronounce the soccer players' names, okay? But someday, someone help, help us with a soccer illustration. So Michael Jordan invites me to travel with the Bulls through the playoffs. And I, folks, I, I'd be willing to do practically anything. And if you like basketball and Michael Jordan, I think you would too, right? I'll wash his socks. I'll sweep up the popcorn in the stands. I'll unclog the toilets. I, I'd do anything Why? Because I'm a nobody, and out of thousands, millions of fans, he's chosen me to travel with him. I'll do anything. Late nights, long days, it doesn't matter. I get to travel with Michael Jordan and watch him move through the playoffs, crush the Phoenix Suns 4-2 in the finals. He scores 41 points a game. He's the MVP of it all. And then at the end, he calls me up on the stands to be up on the stand when he gets the trophy and is declared MVP. 
I'd do anything, and every single one of us would do anything if we could do, be with that, with our hero. Would we not? Would we not? So where does Jesus Christ fall in our affections and our priorities? If we would do anything, and I think every, any, every one of us would, to be with that kind of hero, what about Christ? Christ is infinitely greater than Michael Jordan or any of our heroes. Michael Jordan scored 30 points a game in his career, and that's cool. Christ spoke a billion galaxies into existence with just a word. MJ has his millions. That's cool. Christ owns the universe. Michael Jordan doesn't even know my name or that I exist. And if he did, he wouldn't care. But my name and your name are written on Christ's heart and graven on his hand. And he calls each of us by name. So when he commands us, in view of all of my mercies toward you, present your bodies as a living sacrifice to me, how are we going to respond? Some of us have probably committed 6% 6% of our lives to the Lord. I mean, that's, that's more than a lot of people commit, right? I mean, you know, Sunday mornings, most, most Sunday mornings. Um, six, well, maybe 3% of my income. That's more than... Some of us have probably committed 86% of our lives, but there's, there's still an area to us like, Lord, you know, I'm, I'm fencing this off, this area. So far, no further, Lord. But God is saying to you, and he's saying to me through his word, I'm not negotiating. I'm commanding. I want it all. I require it all. In addition to the sacrifice, this commitment being total, Paul also describes the sacrifice as holy and acceptable to God and as our spiritual worship. Isn't it amazing that we who, you just go back a few chapters in Romans, want, we were sinners through and through, just enemies of God, and now God can look at us in presenting our lives to him and say, this is a holy and acceptable sacrifice. Acceptable can also be translated well-pleasing. That God can be pleased with us is an amazing thing knowing who we are, who we are apart from him. So this sacrifice is total, 100%. It's holy and acceptable. And it's also reasonable or rightful. The King James probably has a better rendition of the final words of verse 1, where, where the ESV says, this is your spiritual worship. The King James says, this is your reasonable service. It's reasonable, it's rightful, it's logical in light of all God has done for us that we would respond in this way to him. So point one is our decisive commitment. No reserves, no retreat. And now point two is our daily resistance and pursuit. 
If verse 1 calls us to a decisive commitment, in a sense, at at a moment in time, it may be repeated. We are saying we are going in this direction. Verse 2 then will be the daily, the resisting this and pursuing this. Read it with me. In verse 2, Paul says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So the daily resistance is do not be conformed to this world. I love the way J.B. Phillips translates this or paraphrases this when he calls it, don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. Don't be conformed. Don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. So what does it mean to be squeezed into its mold? It's to allow the world to shape the way we think, the way we believe, our values. Max Sanders, who was Carol's pastor before we were married, writes this, and I don't have this quote on the board. He says, Every moment of every day, something in our soul is being fed and something is being starved. Because we live in a fallen world, the natural course of events feeds the world's values into our soul and starves the spirit's values. Fed largely by the presence, power, and corruption of modern media, many Christians are in danger of being swept out to sea by the riptide of modern culture. We must devise a way to offset this barrage of barrage by power feeding our soul each day with large doses of the things of the Spirit, sufficient to offset the power of the culture. So while we are not to reject all aspects of our culture, there are a lot of things about culture that are wonderful and beautiful, but we must be on guard and we must think critically about it. Kent Hughes gives this quote in his his commentary from Harry Blameyers, who says, Because secularism is in the saddle, it follows that the Christian mind is suspicious of fashionable current conformities. Folks, we must be suspicious. suspicious. Don't be conformed to this world. We are being pressured daily with values and beliefs and things that are not true. We must be suspicious of our culture. And then the daily pursuit is to be transformed. And this little chart here, just a couple, a couple um, parallels or, or things to compare. So we have two, two commands here, one in the negative, one in the positive, right? The negative, don't be conformed. The positive, but be transformed. So the first, the negative command speaks about a pressure from the outside in. The positive command of being transformed is power from the inside working out. And J.B. Phillips, again, his, his rendition here is so helpful. Don't let the world around you squeeze you into its mold. And then the one other place where Paul uses this word transformed in the New Testament is in 2 Corinthians 3.18, where he says, we all beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed, same word, transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. So how does transformation take place? Here in Romans 12, 2, he says, by the renewal of our mind. And that fits perfectly with what he says in 2 Corinthians three eighteen. We are transformed by beholding 
the glory of the Lord. Kent Hughes again writes this. He says, as we answer the call to commitment, we are called to voice a monumental no to the schemes of this fleeting age and a determined yes to the transforming work of the Holy Spirit in renewing our minds. The no without the yes will lead to a life of futile negation. The yes without the no will lead to frustration because Christ will not dwell in Satan's house. These are not suggestions, but are rather imperial commands to be obeyed by all. So this process of transformation that takes place by the renewing of our mind, I hope in a few weeks to come back and give a little more attention to this in a message with just a few, a few thoughts here. All the preaching that Aaron does week after week, all the Bible reading that you do, these are things that are to renew and change the way we think about life so that we begin to see all of life through the lens of Scripture and the truth of Scripture. And so what Aaron preached on a couple weeks ago from Mark chapter 10 about being a servant, right? Christ came not to serve, but to, not to be served, but to serve. And that's what he calls us to. That's what leadership looks like. Does that shape the way you and I think about life? If we're a, if we're a husband, does that shape the way we think about how we lead our families? With your children, parents, does that think about the way you lead your children? At work, does that shape? Does Christ being a servant and calling us to that, does that shape the way we live? That's the kind of thing we need to renew our minds. And so where the cross of Christ begins to shape and affect the way we look at everything, Samuel Zwamer, who was a missionary to the Muslim world and had a great influence on on William Borden, whom we'll come back to in a few minutes. But he wrote this. Or actually, he, he preached this. Who is there tonight who can always see the shadow of the cross falling upon his bank account? Who is there who has the mark of the nails and the print of his spear in the plans of his life, his love and devotion and daily program of intercession? Who is there who has heard the word of Jesus and is quietly, obediently, every day, as he has told you and me, taking up his cross to follow him? Are we being renewed in the spirit of our minds, brothers and sisters? Our resulting, the the result of this is that we will discover and experience God's good and acceptable and perfect will of God. I want to take a little different path here and just share some things in my own life uh, from a number of years ago and then from two days ago. So during spring break of my senior year in high school, I participated in some evangelistic rallies for Japanese high school students in Osaka. I, as most of you know, I grew up in Japan. My folks were missionaries. We went down to Osaka to help with these high school rallies. And at one of the rallies, it was my turn to give my testimony, how I came to Christ. And so I would speak in English and then a translator translated it into Japanese. And so I shared that. And at the end, he added, after I had finished, he added in Japanese, and now I have joy in my life. 
My Japanese wasn't great, but I knew enough to understand he added something at the end that I hadn't said. And now I have joy in my life. Now that bothered me for two reasons. One is because I didn't say that. I didn't think that was exactly kosher to ask somebody. But the other was because I knew it wasn't true. I, I don't have joy in my life. And I remember coming back then, it was spring of my senior year, and I'm anticipating graduating, coming back to college at the end of the summer, coming back to the States for college, and thinking, you know, what I read, when I read my Bible about what God promises, and what I'm experiencing are very different. There's a huge chasm between what he promises and what I was experiencing in my walk with the Lord. And sort of half prayerful, half wish, I, I said to the Lord, Lord, by the end of the summer, when I go back to the States to start college at Taylor University, I want to be excited about you. I want to love you. I don't want this to be this quasi, half committed kind of thing. I had no idea how that would happen. You, you can't make that happen in your life, right? But the Lord began to do a very special work in my heart that spring and that summer. Just in reading my Bible, I was going through the devotional by uh, Oswald Chambers, My Utmost for His Highest. God was doing a work in my heart. And I began to realize he, he was calling me to this uh, Romans 12.1 kind of commitment. If I was going to be serious about the Lord, if I was going to experience what all he called me, I, I needed to make a different kind of commitment to follow him. It's scary, isn't it? We don't like giving up control. And it's interesting thinking back. You know what one of the things I was afraid of? God would ask me to be a missionary in Africa. For some reason, maybe that scares a lot of us. Or maybe he would want me to remain single. Other hard things. And as I wrestled with these questions, here are some of the verses, some of the promises that the Lord gave me that helped me to address and think about my fears. Psalm 34, 7 and 8, Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. I like that. The Lord is good. Psalm 37, 4, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. The Lord's saying, Phil, if you make me your delight, I will satisfy all your deepest desires. Not every desire, because you've got a bunch of desires, Phil, that are not good ones. But if you delight in me, and this is his promise to every one of us, right? If we delight in the Lord, he will satisfy the deepest desires of our hearts. Psalm 84, 11, No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. I'll sign up for that. The Lord promises not to withhold anything that is good for us. Romans 8, 32, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not with him also graciously give us all things? That goes back to the mercies of God, right? If God 
has given us his son? Is he going to cheat us of other things we need? No way. He gave us the most expensive, the greatest gift. He's not going to withhold anything else we need. And then this, our passage this morning in Romans 12, when I got to the end of verse 2 and realized, if I commit myself to the Lord in this way, what I will experience is God's will, which is what? Good and acceptable and perfect. I'll take that. John Newton wrote, if it were possible for me to alter any part of his plan, I could only spoil it. Right? So I went to Bible camp in July after my senior year. And again, the Lord was working through the messages and things he had been doing in my life already. And on the last night of camp, and, and I'm saying this not, not to say you need to go to Bible camp and do exactly what I did, okay, but just how, how the Lord was working in my life. I knew the Lord was calling me to do this, present your body as a living sacrifice. And the last night of camp, I went down to the beach with my brother Brian and with one of the missionaries and counselors, a good friend of mine named Bob. This was one of the biggest struggles I have ever had. Like I was trying to pray and I could hardly get the words out. This may have been one of the biggest awarenesses of spiritual warfare. Satan does not want any of us to take this step. I could hardly get the words out just to say, God, I am yours unreservedly. I don't know what this means. None of us know what that means, right? But God, my life is yours. 100%, no reserve, no retreat. Now taking that step of commitment, it doesn't remove our battles with sin and selfishness. It doesn't result in a letter in the mail the next week with a schedule for the next 15 years of our life laying out exactly what the will of the Lord is. But it does set a trajectory for us and it eliminates a lot of other options, right? When we say, Lord, I'm going to follow you, what, what I found out is when I came to some difficult decisions, the difficulty was in trying to discern, Lord, what, what do you want me to do? But once I was clear on what the Lord wanted me to do, okay, I've already decided back there on the beach that I'm going to follow the Lord. So the, tra- the, traje- the trajectory was set. It makes a lot of things easier, brothers and sisters, because we've already decided, I'm going to follow Christ no matter what. Fast forward to this past Friday, and Jason, if you and the band can come back. I'm preparing this message. Romans 12, 1 and 2 has had a big impact in my life. I'm excited for the opportunities to share with you all, and what, Lord, what do you want to do in the life of Sovereign Grace Church through this message, through this passage? And suddenly, on Friday, the focus shifts a little bit, and the Lord is asking me again, Phil, is your life fully on the altar as a living sacrifice? That's a jarring question. It's easier to think about other people, right? Yeah, let's talk about other people. 
the Lord was saying, Phil, this, this is for you too. I urge you, present your body as a living sacrifice. And so where I am in my life, I'm thinking about my future, thinking about what retirement will look like, thinking about financial needs, what, what might pick grandparenting involve. And there are some areas in my life that I have put some fences around. Not, I haven't said this out loud, but you know what I mean. This stuff you've said, Lord, I, I've paid my dues. I've put in my time. I'll go this far. I'm not, I'm not going any further. And the Lord is saying again to me, in view of God's mercies, present your body as a living sacrifice. None of us have any idea what God may have in store for us in the future. But who would I rather trust with my future? Myself, with my great success, I can look back and see all kinds of failed decisions. Or my heavenly Father, in view of all his mercies and promises to me. What, what makes reasonable sense, brothers and sisters? It's obvious, right? Who would you rather trust with your future? Yourself, how's that going? How are things turning out? Or to trust the God who poured out infinite mercy on you and promises you that if he didn't withhold his own precious son from you, freely gave him up for you, will he not give you everything you need in the life ahead? Young people, this call, this command, this commitment of unreserved commitment to Christ, it isn't just for older, older adults or for later in your life for when you get married and after you get settled down and get your career. It, it's for you today. God is calling you. If you profess Jesus as your Savior, young people, God is calling you and saying, present your body, your life as a living sacrifice. You older saints, empty nesters, midlifers, grandparents. This text isn't just for the young people, right? We're, we're, we're past this. We've done that. We're on the other side. No. It's for every one of us who professes to be a believer in Jesus Christ. Back to William Borden. We left him in Cairo. He was studying Arabic and Islam to prepare again to go to northwest China to minister to the Uyghur Muslims there. He was 24 years old. Within a year, he came down with cerebral meningitis and a few weeks later passed away. Died there in Africa. We're shaking our heads. We don't know how to, we don't know how to handle those things, do we? But his biographer wrote this of him. Suffering there was, intense and prolonged, for, Bor for Borden was fighting the bravest fight of all his life. But he was not alone. Had not his prayer from childhood been that the will of God should be done in his life? There was no shrinking now, no reserve, no retreat, no regrets, had any place in Borden's consecration. To God. No reserve, no retreat, no regrets have any place in our consecration to the God who 
who has poured out infinite mercy on us. So brothers and sisters, the only way you and I will experience the end of verse 2, that we will discover and experience that the, the good and acceptable and perfect will of God is if we do what verse 1 calls us to, and that is to present our bodies, our entire lives to Him as a living sacrifice. So Heavenly Father, we are sobered. Lord, it's a scary thing. And yet when we look at you, Lord, it shouldn't be a scary thing. The scary thing ought to be that we are trying to run our own lives instead of entrusting ourselves to you with your infinite grace and love. So Lord, would you work in our hearts? Would you draw us, every one of us, Lord, there's a gap between what we know you've promised and what we're experiencing. Lord, we want to experience more of you, more of what you promise us as your people. So would you lead us to this commitment to present ourselves to you entirely, unreservedly, or no reserves, no retreat, no regrets. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand. When I survey the 